Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, July 10th, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we will be speaking with Philip Dellinger, MD, FCCM, Professor of Medicine at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and Director of the Critical Care Section at Cooper University Hospital, as well as Roman Yeshka, MD, a clinical professor at McMaster University. They're here to discuss their article published in the August issue of Critical Connections entitled Revising the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, A Closer Look. Both men played pivotal roles in the revision of these guidelines, and they're here to share their thoughts with us today. Thank you both, gentlemen, for joining the, uh, the podcast. Thank you for inviting I thought we'd begin by starting with you, Dr. Yeshka, that evidently there are some changes in the way certain uh, uh, publications are interpreted in terms of the level of evidence, and I thought if you wanted to start out by discussing that, that would be good. The uh, big differences which occurred over the last few years in terms of production of clinical practice guidelines, I think, uh, centered on... uh, Uh, providing the readers with clearer understanding of both the underlying evidence as well as with the strength of the feelings with which the panel believes that following the recommendations will produce more harm than good. I can talk for a second about both of those components, and both of those components are explicitly separated, and they are explicitly separated in new surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. The first one is the assessment of the quality of evidence or uh, the belief that what we see as estimates of effects is true. Uh, There is not really that many changes. People are talking here again about types of uh, methodology underlying the studies, RCTs versus observational studies. Maybe one important thing to, uh, to add is that Uh, We adopted a system, and I will talk for a moment about the system later, which allows uh, assigning high grades or high quality of evidence to studies different than randomized controlled trials only. The uh, quality of evidence is also judged on the basis of consistency of different trials and of directness of those trials to the question at hand. So that's one part. That's the quality of evidence. The second part, however, which is fairly new and in this sense different from previously used methods, is the grading of the strength of recommendations. Again, the strength of recommendations reflects the beliefs of the panel that uh, following recommendations will do more um, good than harm. Again, uh, separating those two elements allows situations in which high quality of evidence, where we have excellent studies with very precise results, would lead to uh, weak recommendations in the setting where the differences between treatment effects is not great, when uh, 
cost is high, where harms are substantial. So again, the big difference between what uh, we used and what we are using now is separation of quality of evidence and strength of recommendation. This distinction comes, by the way, from the uh, collaboration, international collaboration called GREAT. GREAT is a collaboration of people involved in clinical practice guidelines and involved in numerous uh, uh, systems of grading recommendations. There was so much confusion and so much proliferation that those people decided to get together and try to generate one a system which hopefully will be more prevalent and common. It is accepted at the moment by some um, organizations relevant to critical care like American College of Chest Physicians, ATS, and at this moment, surviving sepsis campaign. So there is a hope that people will see one system rather than proliferation of different ones. And, and just to reorient the listeners, the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines were published uh, at, in, in multiple journals, but certainly in critical care medicine in March of 2004. And it was to uh, bring some structure to, uh, and in collaboration uh, with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, to bring some structure to decrease mortality from patients with severe sepsis syndrome and septic shock. And one of the questions I had for you, Dr. Dellinger, is I remember when I, I did a recent podcast on the Varick Task Force, and uh, one of the authors was helping to share what some of the meetings were like getting that done. It was very fascinating. And I was wondering if you could take a couple minutes, um, because most um, critical care clinicians don't get to be in some of these meetings, but I know people have very strong opinions. And if you could take a few minutes, I think it'd be worthwhile to hear what some of these meetings are like? Well, like uh, any successful meeting, uh, there needs to be a lot of work that precedes it. There were groups that were formed to represent uh, each of the major content areas of the guidelines. <clears throat> there was a group leader or co-leaders uh, that were responsible for the uh, making sure the homework uh, got done, and the homework was to build upon the previous guidelines with, again, a extensive literature review with a solid search methodology to ensure that all articles that pertained, all studies that pertain to that particular area, all the questions within that area were reviewed to come to a conclusion based on the methods that Roman described related to the grade system. Then there were representatives from the 11 organizations who previously participated in the first uh, guidelines and endorsed and sponsored them. Plus, we had uh, representatives this time from uh, the Canadian Critical Care Organization as well as the uh, two Japanese Critical Care Organizations uh, were present uh, at the table uh, as well as the German Sepsis Society and also representation from the Latin American uh, Sepsis Institute. Um, we only had one day uh, to go through all of the uh, group's work product. Uh, areas that we anticipated there would be uh, very little discussion. We felt the evidence was fairly straightforward. Uh, we were lucky that, in general, this panned out. Uh, most of the discussion uh, at the meeting centered around anticipated areas uh, such as steroids, uh, activated uh, protein C, uh, glycemic control, 
that allowed us to accomplish in, in one day pretty much everything that we needed to do. There were a couple um, areas that were left open uh, at the end of the meeting, and those were handled subsequently uh, via uh, email uh, to include a vote on several of the recommendations. That was done in a um, closed uh, secret ballot through the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And I guess to to Dr. Yeshke or to you also, Dr. Dellinger, you, you mentioned, I, I think, an important point that randomized clinical trials there, you can have a very important study that was not a randomized clinical trial in this, if I understood what you were saying, and if you could expand upon that, that might be important. The, the great methodology, uh, the great group, uh, included people interested in public health. Uh, those were people uh, from different organizations which include, uh, which look at such interventions like, say, fluorination of drinking water and helmets and seat belts. Uh, those people pointed to us very early that uh, there would be never randomized controlled trials which could look at the evidence of usefulness of such interventions. To a certain degree, to keep those people in the loop, uh, the whole group started to look at the uh, quality of evidence, meaning, again, by quality, uh, probability that the estimates coming from those uh, studies are true, looked at started to look at the ways of bringing the uh, quality of such evidence uh, uh, to a certain degree on par with, um, uh, with randomized controlled trials. It worked both ways. Number one, the randomized controlled trials start as a high quality evidence, but there is lots of reasons for which they can be downgraded. The great methods allows to uh, classify uh, quality of evidence as high, moderate, low, and very low. And certainly, a lot of RCTs end up with moderate, low, or even very low category. Now, when we look at and uh, well-controlled, well-done uh, observational studies, um, which uh, adjust for a lot of uh, possible uh, confounders or, or factors which can influence the results, and uh, found out that there is actually some empirical evidence trying, uh, allowing us to upgrade the um, quality of evidence coming from such trials, or label quality of evidence coming from such trials as higher. Uh, those include, among other things, evidence of uh, dose effect or dose response. Those are situations in which effect is either large or very large, again, with some uh, empirical evidence showing that if the relative risks coming from observational studies exceeds two, uh, it allows for an upgrade of quality of evidence, or over five, it allows for two levels. So, in fact, we, end, we may end up well with a number of situations in which uh, quality of evidence coming from observational studies is labeled high. If I could uh, mention one example, uh, obviously nobody will uh, do RCTs on uh, timing of antibiotic administration in sepsis anymore. But the data coming from observational studies are so strong that I would call quality of such evidence as high on par with good RCTs. When your previous guidelines came out, things like antibiotics for sepsis, because there weren't randomized trials, if I remember correctly, had a lower grading, even though it was obvious that they needed to be done. Now that was precise the reason to bring some what, what's, quote, what's called obvious recommendations to the uh, higher level, or let me rephrase, it, it allows to bring uh, obvious recommendation to a higher level of evidence by 
upgrading the observational studies. And I guess because, and, and I was having a, another podcast on, on the guidelines, where these are often looked at by administrators and, and other types who may not understand why something like antibiotics gets a D. That's your point, right? That's correct. So, Dr. Dallinger, I really did want to spend the last half of the interview, and, and we've tried to hit some of these points in some of the other podcasts because they're so important, but as a, as a service to our listeners, maybe a sneak preview, and I'm going to sort of in a rapid-fire session address some of the major points, and if you want to spend a minute or two on, on your thoughts on the revised uh versions of each one of these. So maybe we'll just get started. So early goal-directed therapy seems to really have taken a, a real hold as a structured approach to resuscitation for the patient with sepsis. And do you have any comments on, on the new guidelines for that? We will continue to uh, recommend early goal-directed therapy as a core uh, recommendation for our early resuscitation of sepsis. Uh, it uh, will have a, a 1B grade. We will recommend both the protocolized portion of the early goal-directed therapy, meaning CVP of uh, 8 or greater, as well as the active treatment arm structure for uh, targeting a superior vena cava uh, O2 SAT of 70% or greater. Uh, we also will allow PA catheters uh, as an alternative. We don't recommend pulmonary artery catheters, but if the decision is made to insert a pulmonary artery catheter, the target would be 65% uh, SAT for mixed venous. But as an overall paradigm, it still is, is very important. We think so, and it's a single-center trial, but it was well done. And recent literature, including data published from our group here at Cooper, demonstrates that it can be duplicated uh, in a non-research, real-world environment. In terms of uh, steroids for severe sepsis syndrome, the Anon approach is going, uh, still recommended or, or any changes? We still recommend steroids. We recommend a, a dosing regimen that covers the Anand study, which had rather harsh entry criteria in that you had to be hypotensive despite maximum therapy for an hour, which included vasopressors. So in order to get in the ANAND trial, uh, you had to be hypotensive despite fluid resuscitation and vasopressor support. Whereas in Bollard and Briegel, uh, it included only being on vasopressors. In both circumstances, we still support the use of steroids for patients with septic shock and uh, on vasopressors. Activated protein C has had lots of other articles come out about it, but uh, I, I didn't see anything that would change your, your overall recommendations. No, we uh, continue to, to recommend uh, the use of recombinant APC. The, the particular patient descriptor for that recommendation now reads as clinical assessment of high risk of death. There have been some recent exciting data coming out from the uh, ARDSnet group with the role of a, a conservative versus a more liberal fluid strategy for patients with ARDS. Is that going to uh, get maybe integrated into the, the guideline revision? It will be. In fact, I was uh, discussing that earlier this morning with John Marini and Jonathan Savransky, who have drafted uh, a recommendation uh, for that particular aspect of care that uh, goes out to the uh, subgroup this week and to the committee later, but uh, we 
do anticipate getting uh, that included in the uh, recommendations. At this point in time, I think it's too premature to say exactly what it's going to be right? Uh, because it's only at the group uh, leader area. There were some follow-up studies about glucose control that have come out uh, in, in multiple journals, and I was wondering, uh, it, it seems to be a little more hazy than it did from the initial study in 01. I was wondering if you could talk about that. All the studies that, that I have seen, uh, whether they're observational or whether they're randomized, None of those studies have shown that glycemic control is bad. The studies have even show, have either shown that it is very good to the point of improving survival uh, or that although there was no survival benefit, there were benefits in other areas such as organ dysfunction. So I think the bulk of the literature demonstrates that glycemic control is a good thing in general in critically ill patients, and that's what our recommendation says. Uh, We give a strong recommendation for glycemic control. I think the controversy is in how much control should there be and in which patient populations that it's most beneficial, and it appears to be most beneficial in surgical patients. But medical patients also uh, had benefit in organ dysfunction, uh, improved organ function, despite the fact that there was no survival, statistically significant survival benefit. And and therefore, the the target for the glycemic control in the patient population, you know, has a, a weaker grade of recommendation. The only study that has suggested clinically significant problems uh, is the study out of Vienna, Germany, that has not been published or peer-reviewed, which apparently, according to uh, abstract presentation, uh, was stopped because of uh, what was viewed by the DSMB to be an unacceptable incidence of hypoglycemia. Uh, Again, we haven't had a chance to peer-review that, but uh, our recommendation includes the fact that you need to have a protocol and you need to be giving exogenous glucose uh, and that you need to have appropriately timed measurements. Well, the committee feels that glycemic control is good for patients with severe sepsis. We do not target as stringent a reduction as was used in the Vandenberg trials, uh, i.e. 80 to 110, because We do think in many ICUs, attempts to do that without adequate resourcing and experience uh, may lead to unacceptable uh, hypoglycemia. Uh, one other question on, on the pressors in, in sepsis. We did a, a podcast recently with Dr. Vincent, and we went over his SOAP study, and it was not a randomized trial, but they did do a multivariate analysis showing that the use of dopamine appeared to be associated with bad outcomes. And, uh, you know, how do you decide how to integrate something like that into your into your guidelines? Well, the guidelines um, recommends either norepinephrine or uh, dopamine, and that's because there there are cl- clinical trials uh, that have been published and are to be published uh, that would suggest that in a prospective fashion, there is no evidence that either of those drugs is better than the other. There are some observational data 
that might support norepinephrine, and there are some physiological differences between those two drugs that might support norepinephrine. Uh, But at the same time, there is a physiologic argument that if you knew the cardiac index was low uh, after fluid resuscitation, uh, there might be an argument to use a drug that has more inotrope and less vasopressor support, So, uh, which would be dopamine. So the, there needs to be more data than it's on. There needs to be more data. And to be honest with you, often uh, when you empirically start uh, vasopressors, uh, you don't know what you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a, a high output, low SVR status? Right, or are right, you dealing right. with a uh, low cardiac output because you have a lot of uh, negative contractility from circulating cytokines? So it's very difficult to say in a general rule that norepinephrine would be better or dopamine would be better. It's just that those two drugs seem to be at the top of the heap for making a choice. Um, and do you, uh, I thought we sort of conclude, I'd let you, Dr. Dellinger, if you have any sort of final comments to, to for the listeners about what it's like to be involved with this process, uh, what you've learned from it, and, and uh, the, the feedback that you've gotten about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Well, I think the the guidelines uh, have been published in about uh, 10 languages. I was just lecturing uh, this past Saturday in Taipei, uh, and I'm looking at, at my desk on a very nicely bound book called Advanced Septic Life Support in Chinese uh, that is, uh, most of the book is the uh, Chinese interpretation uh, of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. The the comment I think is most important is that guidelines by themselves don't change behavior. I think there's ample literature that says that guidelines are only useful as a building block for a performance improvement program that includes measurement of process change. And that's why I want to Make sure that any opportunity that avails itself that uh, the leadership of the surviving sepsis campaign needs to point hospitals and physicians toward the the uh, severe sepsis bundles and the severe sepsis performance improvement program uh, that includes free software, uh, free educational materials, a manual, a version three software of a data a database that allows you to gather data at your hospital and run reports. Uh, This is all free. The software is free. The software technical support is free. The manual and all the educational materials. We now uh, have hospitals, uh, over 500 hospitals in uh, more than a dozen countries, uh, including the U.S., that uh, are loading data uh, into this software. Uh, and we're very excited about how this uh, has grown and is rapidly growing. Dr. Jeshka, any uh, any last comments about what it's been like to be involved in this process of the revision of these guidelines? Well, on a personal level, I'm an intensivist, and being able to cooperate and correspond with the uh, most published intensivists in the world was a great uh, thrill. On a uh, more professional level, I hope that the addition of great methodology provides in the end, down the road, more transparency and reproducibility to the 
whole process, and it was extremely rewarding for me. Yeah, I did have one one last thing. I think it's real important to point out that this is probably the first ever truly international occurrence of a guidelines process where there was buy-in from essentially every international organization with involvement and interest in this particular area. And the fact that we now have taken it one further step where all all over the world there are the same recommendations, the same goals, the same performance improvement initiative is now worldwide uh, with the organizations that have been involved uh, in this process. The, the sepsis bundles, we do not anticipate. In fact, I can tell you that um, that the guidelines themselves uh, will not change the bundles. I think the only thing that could change the bundles would be when we do the first round of uh, data analysis. Well, I'd like to thank you both for joining us. We've been speaking today with Dr. Philip Dellinger as well as Dr. Roman Yeshki regarding the revision of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today. Pleasure. I was glad to do it. This concludes our podcast, recorded Monday, July 10th, 2006. Access the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines in the Professional Resources section of the SCCM website. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Audio Feedback Line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. The Society's new conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, in Baltimore, Maryland, USA, September 21st through 23rd, 2006, will bring together leading experts to examine patient safety, adverse medical events, and preventable medical errors, as well as identify everyday solutions to incorporate into practice. Using evidence-based studies and proven guidelines, participants will learn how to create a more efficient and safer ICU. In addition, pre-courses in coding and billing practices or medical emergency and rapid response teams will be offered. Register today by calling 1-847-827-6888 or visiting www.sccm.org.